Welcome to Conversations with the Creators. Sponsored by the MS in Integrated Advertising Communications at St. John's University. On this episode, we meet Megan Kent, brand strategist extraordinaire and owner of a Brooklyn-based consulting group that helps brands become irresistible. I'm to introduce you all to Megan Kent, who is as I said, one of the most amazing brand strategists I've ever worked with and one and an advertising hero. Uh, Megan and I actually go back uh, many years to the late 90s um, when we worked together at what at the time was the eighth largest uh, agency in the U.S. It was an agency called Bozell. We worked on many brands together. Um, probably the most famous one that we worked on together was the New York Times. But what I want to tell you is that whenever there was an agency that was hot, Megan was there. That's true. That's I don't right. know how that happened, but, but that is very true. Right? So Shia Day in the 80s and the 90s, Hal Reine in the 90s, right? Um, Fallon McGilligan, probably in the early 2000s. No, that was in the 90s. BMW, Coke, Lee Jeans. <laughs> Um, yeah, that was still in the 90s. Right. So, you know, Megan has an incredible resume and portfolio of brands that she's helped build with a couple of them she just mentioned, also Microsoft, Coca-Cola. Um, and now she has her own consultancy. She has her own clients. And she, but more important, well, not more important, equally important, Megan has is just about to publish a book called build an irresistible brand. And in that book, she differentiates herself as any good brand strategist would do by by talking about her approach to connecting with customers and consumers. And that's called brain-friendly branding. And there's a register mark around that because Megan owns that. Um, So today's discussion, we're gonna explore that. Um, And hopefully you will be as inspired by Megan as I have been ever since we met. So let's just start with, you know, brain-friendly branding. You you have come up with this really interesting concept about connecting with consumers. Would you just, you know, give us a little background about it? Tell us um, where it came from and what makes it so powerful? Yeah, okay. So thank you, Neil. I mean, it's been always such a supreme pleasure working with you, another just superhuman, super smart brain. Um, I have had the privilege of working with some of the world's greatest brands and working at, I mean, really the the best advertise. I, I say the best, and I'm going to qualify that, the what were at the time the most notable and frankly award-winning advertising agencies in the country. And having said that, I started to feel frustrated that at some point, I mean, when I worked at Hell Reine, he was such a genius at creating brands. Lee Clow, I mean, we did, the Apple 1984 commercial, that really dates me. Um, Hal Rooney was a strategist and a creative person at the time. At the time, He invented the Gallo brand. He invented the Henry Weinhardt brand. He invented the Perrier brand. 
he did this by romancing the inherent beauty of the brand's DNA and told stories about them. And at the time, we all kind of thought, well, that's a hell Rhiney thing. Um, but then I started moving on to different agencies that were winning a lot of awards. And I started becoming really frustrated that the creative directors who were working on the campaigns were solely focused on entertaining consumers with their ads. And I felt like they didn't understand some of these values that I had learned early on from Lee Plow and Paul Reine. And this is when I started becoming interested in neuroscience. This was around the 19, this was around the 1990s, and most of you probably weren't even born then, or maybe you were born then. Um, but these were some of the things that I was experiencing. So I don't know if anybody is old enough to remember the, the Taco Bell, Yo Quiero Taco Bell ad campaign. Well, basically it featured, it was, you know, our agency had just won the award for, um, I mean, won, won the account for Taco Bell and the creatives, uh, created this ingenious campaign that has a roaming dog. It was a chihuahua running around the street saying, yo quiero Taco Bell, which means I want to, I want to talk about now. I mean, I, yeah, I want Taco Bell. And this ad campaign became so famous and the press was applauding it. It won tons of added, uh, ad industry awards. It didn't sell tacos. So at the end of the day, the client said, we created more interest in chihuahuas. In fact, they were actually selling stuffed chihuahuas at the Taco Bell at the time than we did in tacos. Okay, so you're focusing your advertising message on a dog. Right? Okay, first of all, that's kind of weird because you're selling tacos and now I'm thinking like, is there a dog meat taco? Um, at the end of the day, the client fired the agency because it didn't move the merchandise. It didn't sell tacos. There was another campaign so famous for Miller Lite. Um, and this is called the Dick Campaign. And it was featuring this fictional advertising superstar called Dick, and he's running around in these weird occasions where you have a guy dressed up as a beaver eating uh, people's peg legs uh, in a campground and a, a magician's assistant with rats coming out of her uh, armpits. And, you know, again, the ad industry started just going, oh, this is so great, it's so funny. And um, it got tremendous amount of press. How well did it do at selling light beer? It didn't. According to the Washington Post, despite the $250 million they spent 
in the media to save the company's decade-long slide, Miller's market share actually slipped an additional 2% over the lifespan of the campaign. So in this equation, they didn't just fire the agency, they fired Miller's chief executive and his top sales marketing lieutenants at the time. So yes, we had some successes. We had some great campaigns that really moved the needle for our clients, but I felt like, why is it that this feels like such a gamble that our clients are, are risking so much and, they, and, and, and we don't really know, we don't really have a concrete roadmap to follow to ensure a client's success. Around that time, I saw this quote in Ad Age um, by Moshe Bar, a professor and neuroscientist, and he said, Advertisers could go further by better understanding the basic science of the human mind, learn how to better generate positive associations that will stick in the memory. So as a brand strategist, our job was to understand consumers, okay? So we did surveys and we did focus groups and that's how we kind of like learned what the consumer was thinking, but I decided I want to just know what people think. I want to know how people think. So at that moment, I became a brain science junkie. And what I uncovered was pretty astounding. The first book that I read was this one by Gerald Zaltman from Harvard Business School. And he is called How Consumers Think. And he was, you know, neuroscience had kind of been in academia for a while, but this was one of the first books that made it into popular culture, or at least um, among people in, in our trade. So the most interesting point of this book was that 95% of our decision-making takes place in the subconscious mind. And at the point I read that, I thought, this is what I've been feeling all along, is that we're trying to be too rational, How, or, or we're trying to be too funny, or we're trying to reason people into loving us. But the fact of the matter is, is that all of the deposits that your brand is making in consumers' minds are going to stick in the deepest parts, and they're going to determine whether or not you return. Now, this point has, has, has now been verified by virtually every academician, neuroscientist in the field. I mean, it's commonly known, Daniel Kahneman, um, Nobel Prize winner. I, I don't know if any of you have read Thinking Fast and Slow, but it's generally, common knowledge now that we are making decisions 90 95% of the time in the subconscious part of our minds. So we naturally gravitate towards what feels good and we run away from what doesn't. If I feel good about your brand based on the deposits that you put into my subconscious mind and my memory from 
the experience of using the product, the customer experience, you know, calling the, the, the call center or the interactivity of the website, just the advertising as well. So why would you show women with hairy armpits, no, mice coming out of their armpits to sell Miller Lite? This is going to go into my memory and kind of create a gross feeling. Let's figure out new ways to accentuate the product's inherent benefits, which originally they stood on taste great, less filling. Why not figure out other ways to promote the benefit of the product? Okay, so now is what gets even more interesting. At the seat of the subconscious mind lies our reptilian brain, the oldest primordial part of our brain, the instinctive part of our brain that has been developing over six million years. And all the experts in the field have acknowledged that when it comes to decision-making, the older reptilian brain always wins. I love this quote from Nigel Nick Nicholson in the Harvard Business Review. He says, you can take the man out of the Stone Age, but not the Stone Age out of the man. And Ronald Wright, um, the, the writer of A Short History of Progress, has informed us that our brains have only changed 2%, 0.2% in the last 50,000 years. So despite all these ideas of neuroplasticity, yes, we can adapt to new conditions, but when it comes to decision-making, we have much more in common with our ancestors than we ever imagined. So now the question is, what are some of the most important core instincts for decision-making shortcuts of the reptilian brain? Now, you have to think about the reptilian brain's sole purpose is to ensure our survival. And it has guided our successful evolution as a species over the last hundreds of thousands of years. So it's important to understand these three operating principles. First and foremost, self-preservation. Can I trust you? Am I safe? Survival and self-preservation are the brain's number one job. We instinctively gravitate towards people, places, and things, and brands to trust. So brands that create a sense of trustworthiness and reliability will be preferred. Here's number two, energy conservation, don't make me think. So our default decision-making process is to avoid deep thinking whenever possible. How many of us like to do hard work? Like basically nobody. I mean, <laughs> especially now it's harder than ever. And you know why? Because effort, effortful thinking taxes us enormously it burns a lot of calories and depletes our glucose reserve which we need for emergencies 
So if I do have to write a book or write a report or do an inventory analysis, yes, I will use my deep thinking brain. But if it's about making decisions about brands, I'm not there. We're cognitive misers instinctively conditioned to conserve energy in order to survive. So we use the law of least effort whenever possible. So brands that are effortless to interact with are the ones we go back to again and again. And I'm gonna get into this in a little bit more detail um, coming up. Okay, the third, the third core principle that drives our decision-making is pleasure over pain. Will this feel good? So pleasure seeking and pain, and, and pain avoidance motivates almost all of human behavior. Deep within our DNA, we've been evolutionary programmed to move to what feels good and away from what doesn't. You know that feeling that you have with a friend and I mean, it's happened to me a few times where I just figure after a series of certain interactions, you just kind of go, this person doesn't make me feel good. And slowly over time, you just start avoiding their phone calls. And the same thing happens with brands. So this is why it's so important to make people feel good at every interaction. Because the memory of how pleasurable it felt to do business with your brand will determine whether or not your customer returns. It's not a rational thing. You just slowly kind of go, I've ordered from that company before. They didn't send me a shipping confirmation. Came three weeks later than I thought it was going to. And when the product finally arrived, I didn't like it. Are you going to go back? No, because it was painful versus pleasurable. So these three basic tendencies govern almost all of human decision-making, not only about brands, but about all things, about cities, about places, about your friends, and about things you buy. So through my study of the most successful brands of the day, which um, I'm obsessed with brand success. I have, for the past 30 years, I'm looking at, why is this brand successful? Why is this brand not successful? And I've, <laughs> oh my God, I've been making so many notes. I've, I've, of stacks, it's embarrassing. I have stacks and stacks and stacks of not only books, but notes, because I'm always making my observations. So I'm combining my learning from the brands that have been the most successful brands of the day. And frankly, they've been successful without advertising. They didn't start with a huge ad campaign. So this is what made me as somebody who works in advertising, particularly want to pay attention. And I combine my study of these brands 
with my life in neuroscience. And I realized that brands like Starbucks, the Container Store, Spanx, Sweet Green, Dollar Shave Club, Soul Cycle, Tesla, Trader Joe's, Five Guys, Warby Parker, Amazon, Patagonia, they're succeeding because they're meeting our core human instincts. So how are they doing that? First of all, we trust and believe in them because they make their purpose known and act in accordance with their stated promise. Do I trust you? Yes, I trust them. They delivered on their purpose. Two, they make it easy to get what we came for. We don't have to think too hard when doing business with them. It's not effortful. And three, they consistently provide pleasure over pain through feel-good customer experiences. So, you know, I just got a new client and um, I looked on the Amazon reviews of their product and, and they want to do this $10 million ad campaign. And I went on Amazon and I would say 60% of the customer reviews were negative. Do not start an advertising campaign when you don't have your product ready. There's a saying in our business which says the fastest way to kill a bad, um, mediocre product is with good advertising. Because what you're going to do is you're going to draw people to the brand. And then they're going to tell all your all their friends that it sucks to do business with you. Okay, so this is something as you guys are getting started in the business, as you're thinking about your client. I get very very frustrated with clients who want to go to the market with a subpar product. Don't do it. Don't do it until you know that your product works. Your customer experience works, your return policy works, the whole thing. Otherwise, you're just going to start spreading more negative word of mouth and you're never going to get over it. No matter what your brand says or does, there's no way to sh short circuit human instinct. Okay, so what are the brain friendly branding drivers? I've developed seven brain friendly branding drivers to specifically help brands satisfy these innate universal human instincts in order to create the most powerful connection possible with your customers. In order to create an irresistible brand. Why irresistible? Because reason isn't even going to factor in. Because if you've done all of these seven behaviors, your customers will be magnetically attracted to your brand. So these drivers aren't new. You're going to say, oh, yeah, I've heard about, you know, story, authenticity, all of this stuff. Um, they're not strange. They're not unconventional. In fact, as we've seen, they're largely prehistoric. That's funny. <laughs> and not reptilian. <laughs> <laughs> this is the part of the brain that you are targeting. It's not the 5% the thinking part of the brain. This is what people need to understand. 
in order to appeal to your customers, you need to do these seven things. So one, tap your authenticity. So in order to satisfy your customers' desire for trust, you need to build a brand that's authentic, purposeful, and true. And because we're always on the lookout for hidden dangers that might threaten our survival or our comfort or our happiness, brands that seem trustworthy and genuine will be instinctively preferred. So brands like Sweet Green, Trader Joe's, Tesla, Dollar Shave Club are particularly good at generating trust by stating their authentic purpose, fusing that purpose into all aspects of their marketing and customer experience. The second one is tell your stories. I love this quote from the author of the storytelling animal, How stories make us human. He said, human minds yield helplessly to the suction of stories. So from our days as hunter gatherers, when we sat around the fire listening to our elders, our minds have instinctively responded to stories. He even says in this book, this is, I think, one of the most profound things that I have read because I've done so much research on why stories matter. And he <laughs> actually said, we don't really know. We don't really know why stories work so much better than a list of facts. They just do. So stories, I mean, there's tons of data that show us that, first of all, science shows that stories, so when you put like little facts in people's heads, it only, occupies a little teeny tiny part of the brain. When you tell stories, you're transmitting enormous quantities of information by triggering multiple regions of the brain simultaneously and eliciting rich, colorful, and emotional responses. So as a brand, we want to own more real estate in the brain, right? We, we, <laughs> we, we want to take up more than just a little piece of the brain. Stories help us learn and remember more easily. There's tons of data on this. And they also create empathy and social glue. So brands that tell stories about their founders, employees, products, services, and customers satisfy our innate desire to understand, believe, empathize, and connect. I'll never forget the time I went out for a drink with a friend and he said, Hey, you should. I didn't know what to order. And he said, you should get something that has St. Germain in it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You, you're a beer guy. What do you know about St. Germain? I've never even heard him talk about any other kind of alcohol. Well, he had just heard a story. Because he'd been to a bar and, and the bartender started telling him about St. Germain and how in the foothills of the Alps, for a few fleeting spring days, this man will gather wild blossoms for your cocktail, for elderflowers, you can see 
And what he does is he picks these flowers and then he rides them in a bicycle down to the marketplace where the distillery picks them up. And they only bloom a few times a year. These people are based in the French Alps. And then not only that, well, so, so this is what happened. Their distributor went around with this little storybook. Not only did it have stories of the men riding their bicycles down, down the hills of the Alps, but it had all these cocktail suggestions about how to make drinks with, with elderflowers. I was so captivated by the story. First of all, the bartender was so captivated by the story. Then the bartender told my friend, my friend told me, I've been drinking Saint-Germain ever since because this story is so romantic. And I've been talking about it for years. Um, look at Warby Parker. I love their story. Look at this. So they have, this is a, the case the glasses came in. They tell their story on the lens cloth. It says, once upon a time, a young man left his glasses on an airplane. He tried to buy new glasses, but new glasses were expensive. Why is it so hard to buy stylish glasses without spending a fortune on them, he wondered. He returned to school and told his friends, we should start a company to sell amazing glasses for non-insane prices. We should make shopping for glasses fun, said another. We should distribute a pair of glasses to someone in need for every pair sold. So that the Eureka Warby Parker was born. You know, Warby Parker does a lot of things right. Their their customer experience is amazing and their classes are great, but I don't think people would care as much if they didn't understand what was behind these three guys. Um, I also love the Amy's packaging where they talk about after the birth of our daughter, we couldn't find easy to make fresh food. And they named the product after their daughter, and they talk about the ingredients. And I can buy any kind of packaged food in the in the freezer section, but because of their story, because I believe in them, I believe in their purpose and their mission, it adds credibility and it adds empathy. So if you think about what are the stories that your brand can tell about their founders, the employees, the products, the services, customers, your manufacturing? It, this is a manufacturing story. Tell stories about your brand because it satisfies our innate desire to understand, believe, empathize, and connect. So the next one, number three, is speak visually. So this is pretty weird, if you think about it. Of all the ways we absorb data from the outside world, our sense of sight is the most immediate. And researchers feel like this is probably because our very survival depended on it. So if you think about it, through sight, we avoid danger. We can see a fire, we can see a saber-toothed tiger, we can get out of it. We didn't have sight, we couldn't find food. We couldn't find what we need to eat to survive. 
and we need sight to find a mate, to find a satisfactory person to procreate with. So if you think about it, sight really supports our primary survival pillars. More than half of our brain is dedicated to seeing. It's that important. Which means that every single part of your brand's visual presence has a powerful impact on its customer, whether intentional or not. You are never not communicating visually. So whatever is on your website, whatever's on your packaging, whatever's on your product, whatever your employees are wearing, we are making an intuitive assessment of your brand. So brands must learn to craft an intuitively comprehensible and compelling visual presence in order to minimize cognitive effort, make us think too hard, remember, show me the benefits, make me feel, experience the benefits, and maximize instinctive appeal. So I love how Patagonia, for example, in their ads, they're always showing people in crazy outdoor environments. Yes, they're wearing the Patagonia clothes, but because we're always seeing people in adventures in incredibly exotic places, they're reinforcing their commitment to the earth, which everybody knows. Patagonia, what's their, all life on earth is worth, worth protecting against destruction. We're in business to save our home planet. That's what they're about. <clears throat> and they very subtly tell us that through every ad. Trader Joe's, everybody knows their crazy um, graphics which actually are hand designed in every different market that they're in to feel like the vibe of the neighborhood, but always within this quirky style, tells us this will not be an ordinary shopping experience. It's a beautiful way to create a brand identity that really differentiates you. Now, I'm sorry, but this is my favorite. So Tamara Mellon used to work at Jimmy Choo, which was like this big, I don't know, I don't know if you guys know these very expensive shoes, but her idea was to create a kind of Casanova experience, a seduction. She wanted her shoes to, to feel like an illicit affair. So every, every image of Tamara Mellon's shoes shows these legs. I mean, this is the way she's created a proprietary identity. Every single thing they do. I mean, think about that. Choose a signature style, a signature photographic style, and all of a sudden you're creating a brand that tells people what you're about. The next one, number four, is be consistently satisfying. In our drive for self-preservation, remember that is key. We need to survive. We evolved to be certainty-seeking creatures, naturally driven 
towards the safe, familiar, and predictable. How many times do you go to the grocery store and buy the exact same toothpaste, pasta, mustard, salami, whatever that you always buy? Why? Because you know it's going to be good. You go to the you you go to the same restaurant. You order the same menu item. We are certainty-seeking creatures, and to be honest, that's why everybody is so upset right now. It's nothing certain. It's creating tremendous anxiety for people because we have no ability to predict what's coming. It's very uncomfortable. Uncertainty triggers a fear response in humans. Certainty triggers a reward response. So as a result, we strive, we try to clear situations with potentially unpleasant outcomes as much as possible. So the brands with the most predictable and consistently satisfying customer experience are the ones we gravitate to. Again, we prefer pleasure over pain. Okay. People might not actually like love the policies of Amazon, Uber, sometimes even Starbucks. Actually overcome that stuff. I did this huge global research project for Uber, and this was when they were going through the height of all kinds of criticism regarding their um, internal policy and everything. You know what people said? I don't care. People want to push a button and know that they will be somewhere in 10 minutes. With Amazon, I want to push a button and in 10 seconds know that my product is going to arrive probably tomorrow. So if your brand is delivering an inconsistent, uncertain customer experience, what are people going to do? They're going to go to the next one. Number five is positively engage the senses. Okay, sight, yes, is our primary sense. It's only one of our five modes of perception. Our remaining four senses are also always on. Always on. You wake up in the morning, all your senses are on and they're assisting in our navigation of the world. And they're also located in the most primal part of the brain, which means they bypass reason altogether and instantly connect with our feelings. How can you explain, I mine sent this song last night, and I was in a really bad mood because I knew I'd be working until two in the morning, and play this song on Instagram Messenger, and I listened to it, and it completely changed my mood. All of a sudden, I was in an incredible mood. I mean, think about the feel of the Apple iPhone box. You're not really thinking about it, but you are, it feels like satin. You're getting a premium sensation, and we don't even think about it. 
you don't even realize it. But now I'm thinking to myself, I'm feeling this is a high quality. So if you think about it, negative sensory experiences will immediately repel people. So if I walk into a restaurant and it smells moldy or something like that, I'm probably not even going to sit down to eat. Um, we Remember, we gravitate towards what feels good and away from what doesn't. So brands that incorporate pleasurable scents, sounds, textures, and tastes into the customer experience can create lasting memories and powerful emotional connections. And again, these are stored in our subconscious mind. It's not, you know, you, you can say we're the best restaurant, but if I, I mean, you can't reason someone to loving you. So if I have an intuitive connection with, for example, Singapore Airlines, which is probably the original scent marketer, <laughs> They're the number one brand in airlines for customer satisfaction around the world. How much do you think it has to do with the fact that they've been scenting their air cabins since the beginning with something called Flurid Flur Floridian Water? They have their stewardesses. Well, I'm not supposed to call that anymore. Um, actually, wear the perfume, and they scent the towels that they're giving out pre-flight with this Floridian water scent. And so people just walk in and they just feel this amazing sensation that, that smells good. And who knows if they even remember, but it helped people feel great. Starbucks, on the other hand, they create a sensory experience all about coffee you know why because they don't let their 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 baristas wear perfume they also don't cook the breakfasts on site because they don't want any sense to interact or interrupt the incredible coffee smell think about how satisfying it is when Someone Venmo's you, and you get that cha-ching. I mean, it's brilliant. Like, okay, I mean, Venmo's an amazing creation, but but how how great it just connects you even more to the brand because you have these sensory experiences while you're doing business with them. And I don't know, will they be so successful without that cha-ching? Or on Tinder, you get a little sound or notification. You've got a match. The sound of sending Apple email, it just feels good. Also, it's an incredible sensory sensation through touch. They created a whole brand with ergonomically designed, better feeling kitchen appliances. The Patagonia catalog you may not realize it, but you sense it, it's made of recycled paper. So think about all the ways that you can bring your brand to life, not only through advertising, not only through 
messaging, but through the actual product experience and engaging the senses, which again, remember, bypass reason. If it makes you feel good, you're going to go back. The sixth one, and we have seven, um, show novelty. Wired as we are to seek certainty and consistency, we're also programmed to notice change. So new is one of the most popular words in marketing vocabulary. Why? Because novelty attracts our attention. And it goes back to survival. We're always on alert for potential threats or rewards. Hey, there's something coming at me. That's new. I've got to get away. Or a potential reward. Hey, I see berries under the, uh, under the bush there. That could be my lunch. So we are always on alert for what's new and what's next. Now, brands can't be too novel. There's a pretty funny example in BIC, you know, the brand of lighters. Well, in 1989, they invented um, something called BIC Parfum. So it was one of the biggest marketing flops of all time. If you can imagine somebody wanting, I mean, what were they thinking to you to people who are buying their brand for cigarette lighters and pens? Oh yeah, I gotta have that perfume. Uh, it was one of the biggest marketing flops of all time. But brands that show novelty in appropriate doses. There's a quote from uh, Tim Cook that says, uh, Tim Cook is the CEO of Apple, and they're obviously one of the masters of novelty. There's nothing so satisfying as seeing something that's new yet familiar at the same time. So Apple is brilliant. Always the rounded curves, always the same font, always the same interface. It's always the white or chrome or something that feels in sync with the brand. But they constantly keep us interested by innovating relentlessly. Absolute vodka. Um, actually, brand I used to work on. How long? I mean, Absolute Vodka came to the United States in, in 1979, okay? Today, they're, the, they're still the number two spirit sold globally. How long would they have uh, existed if they hadn't constantly innovated? In 1986, they introduced Absolute Pepper, then Absolute Citron, they even introduced a Spike Lee Brooklyn Vodka. They've gone on to um, introduce some 30 brands over the past 40 years, um, which has no doubt contributed to their success. So if you think about, I want to keep my customers for life. You can't just sit on your laurels and say, hey, I made a bagel and that's it. Um, you need to keep showing them that you're on top of the business and the brand. Um, 
Target's great at this too. I mean, they they do these partnerships with these fashion designers, Alessi, Masonian, Pulitzer, Vineyard Vines. So you always know when you go to Target, you're going to get something that you, you're going to find the stuff that you went there to get. But at the same time, you'll always be a little bit surprised. And that's the sweet spot. Familiar, but fresh. The last one is about creating community. And this one is so fascinating because uh, there's a series of David Eagle. And I mean, there are, there are a lot of people that talk about how we're hardwired for human interaction. And I think this is another reason why people are so depressed right now is because we, we, we aren't seeing our tribe. But there are, again, our biological roots in this. Social animals with a deep-seated desire to belong. Why? Our survival as a species has always been dependent upon acceptance by our tribe. Alone against the elements, we would have never survived. So in order to avoid predators and maximize our chances for survival, we have always moved in groups. There's really no story of one person who existed without a community. It's in our nature to want to form lasting and meaningful connections with like-minded others. Brands that excel at creating a sense of community satisfy our instinctive need for belonging, comfort, and certainty. You know, just think about it. Are you an iPhone person or an Android person? You instinctively feel good when you find other iPhone people. And my son is an Android guy and he drives me crazy because nothing works together and he's all about putting on Apple. Um, are you a BMW person or a Prius person? They have their own clubs. Are you a Subway person or a Sweet Cream person? Are you a Soul Cycle person or a CrossFit people person? These people just by brands can become surrogate communities. You know, they, of course, we have our book clubs, our football pools our neighborhood potlucks, but brands can also play this role. And brands like SoulCycle, for example, create a sense of insiderness and inclusivity through proprietary rituals. Um, in my book, I talk about things like rituals, mantras, codes of conduct, not to mention rewards and, and, and um, communal events, which Happen again. Um, but it can happen virtually. But Soul Cycle, for example, has a proprietary experience. They light candles in the room. Um, they always play music at top volume. Instructors are always superheroes, super energetic. And they post a, a proprietary code of conduct outside the room, which in its own way creates a sense of insiderness because they tell us, once you get in this room, there's no texting, 
There's no talking and no bad-selling laundry. I love this example from Bourbon and Branch. Um, this is speakeasy in San Francisco, and it's kind of you know hidden. And they say uh, they also have their code of conduct, which involves um, no talking on your phone inside, and even think about ordering a cosmopolitan, which is I don't know if you guys are too young. But it's like a sissy's 80 drink and so not in sync with the Prohibition era vibe that they're going through. <laughs> um, Dollar Shave Club creates community by having their own proprietary little mantras um, when you get your supplies in the mail. Only you can prevent face fires. Change your blade each week. Your face is not a wheel of cheese. Don't grate it. They also always send these newsletters. I mean, the list is endless. You can read more about it in my book. But um, I love this quote from my friend, uh, anthropologist Bob Deutsch. And he says, the quickest way to create a cult feeling is through rituals of membership. So, you know, even if it's as simple as eating an Oreo, you know, we like twist it off and you eat the cream first. That's a ritual of membership. Um, and give people stuff. I got this bag from Brooklyn. Uh, they're this amazing sheet company. And I carry it with me. Oh, my, my sheets arrived in this bag and I thought, wow, this thing gave me something. And it creates a sensation of reciprocity, like they gave me a gift and now I want to be loyal to them. Okay, it's a little bit um, manipulative, <laughs> but it works. Well, we're in it advertising, works. aren't we? <laughs> I think it's brilliant. I carry the bag with me whenever I need a tote. And honestly, it reminds it stays top of mind. And it reminds me of how wonderful I think their sheets are. And um, I feel like I'm part of their club, part of their job, just because they gave me that nice bag. Well, Megan, I think you're wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an hour now already, believe it or not. I see that. I see that. So I, see so that. I have a million questions, but you know what? It's This is more about what the students want to ask you. And I do have one question um, from Marin. Um, and I'm going to ask you, Marin, would you just unmute yourself and ask Megan this question? I think it's a really fantastic question. Sure. Sorry, I don't have my camera on. I was eating, didn't want to be munching into the camera, but you've had some great insight. Loved hearing you talk. And when you were talking about, I can't remember exactly which number in your process, but you were talking about um, how people sacrifice like convenience. They'll follow brands they don't um, entirely like anyway, just because it's easy. It's the easy way out. So how do you think the cognitive dissonance that occurs when a person knows about a company's poor practices but feels compelled to buy their product for convenience, as you mentioned Amazon, will affect that brand over time? Yeah, that's a, that's a, I mean, that's the question. 
because I've thought about that so much. It's like, really, right now, people hate Jeff Bezos. They hate Amazon. They hate Uber. And this is one of those instances where pleasure over pain is overriding my desire for authenticity. And there aren't very many examples of these principles going against each other. But the fact of the matter is that you're actually going, you're going for self-preservation in the most powerful way. Because you're saying, I come first, my needs come first, I'm going to do business with this brand. Now, there, there aren't very many brands like Amazon and Uber. So I would just proceed with caution. Um, the fact of the matter is, particularly among millennials, you guys know, I mean, people want to do business with brands they trust and brands that they feel that their values align. So unless you can create another Amazon or Uber, um, <laughs> I mean, there just are not that many examples. Um, you know, I've been to Home Depot enough times to know that I'm never going back. I hate them. I'm going to Lowe's. And you know, I switched banks, which is a really, really hard thing to do because they, you know, they say I'm a gold customer and they treat me abysmally. So finally, when it came time to open a, a new business account, I went away. Um, so your question is right on the money. I've, I've thought about this a million times. Um, because it is overriding people's desire for, for, for trust and authenticity. I mean, you do trust them because you always get where you need to go and you always get your, your packages. But in some cases, your desire for pleasure over pain overrides your desire for authenticity. And honestly, there, I mean, I've said this sometimes, now, there just are very few examples. That was a great question. So throughout your throughout your um, discussion about brand, you 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 cited several brands, you know, great brands, Patagonia and Trader Joe's, and 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 do you find that all of these great brands have all of these seven characteristics? Um, that's another really, really, really good question. I have made a rating. Um, I've actually made a chart about how well each, I'm going to say something. It is very rare that a brand excels at all seven of these things. And I know from my own personal experience working with clients, um, they can do a few of them. What I'm saying is... Listen, if you do one of these things, it's great. But if you do several, 
it's better. If you do all seven, you're going to kill it. I mean, I don't think, what I feel is that most of these brands excel at several of these points, but achieving 100% in all seven takes a lot of work. I mean, Trader Joe's, frankly, does everything, but they don't have a story. You know, they're, they're very private. So that kind of creeps me out a little bit, even though I love Trader Joe's. Um, they do everything else perfectly. Um, JetBlue has lost some of its authenticity and their customer experience has gone down since its change of leadership, but they started out with the bank. Um, so, I mean, again, it's a great question. And no, I feel like I feel like all of these brands do a lot of these things well, but it's hard to find one that does every single thing. And that's my that's my dream, you know, because I feel like if if you can get your clients to do all seven of these things, they will succeed. Uh, you know, it's kind of like religion. You, you know, you have to spread the word. <laughs> Help people believe it. I mean, there are a lot of things that get in the way, and usually it's internal politics, the, you know, operations people don't speak to the marketing people and uh, the leadership isn't that concerned about um, the, the product delivery. We never even think about telling their story, but people want that. Even if it's a story about your supplier, tell a story. I mean, I will never forget when I read this Costco newsletter about these employees that were on the salmon team and they worked for six months to keep going and finding cheaper and fresher salmon. And when I read this newsletter, I mean, the salmon started at like $7.99 and then it ended up at $4.79 a pound and it was the freshest salmon available in the country. And when I read this story about the employees, so you can tell stories about your customers, your founders, your employees, your suppliers, your manufacturing process. Find a story because that story about Costco changed my opinion about the brand from being just a big box retailer to somebody who was committed to delivering a better, a way better product for their customers. So true. Any other questions? Any anybody curious about anything? Specific questions about you know the brands that you're interacting with? Why are they not doing something? I mean, I have a million questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My question, you know, here's my biggest frustration because I believe you. Like, um, you you've in, you've even 
what's the word? You're, you're the evangelist yeah, and I believe you. Are. Right, yeah. I believe you. But then you go into a client who believes that they are doing these things. Like, oh, we have great customer service, but they don't. Well, <laughs> we, this we have is a great story, <laughs> but they don't. <laughs> so there's a data point. It's in my book that 86% of brands think that think that they're delivering superlative customer serious service and yet 19% of their customers rate them the same way so and i've done this exercise with clients i go through the audit and i say you know are you doing are you telling your stories are you do you have a good customer experience are you constantly updating are you creating and they kind of say oh yeah we're doing all that stuff <laughs> they're not and that's why i say these things are not new they're not surprising but they're critical and you know, I'm not coming out here saying, you know, you have to do this latest digital media strategy, which, you know, all of that comes later. I'm saying get the foundation right. Otherwise, you're going nowhere. You're go and I constantly get clients like this. Yeah. I mean, it's an issue, but I'm not going to change. You know, I, I think. I, I'm not going to change because they aren't doing it. I'm going to, I'm, you know, I'm going to keep evangelizing because I'm sure that every single one of you says this makes instinctive sense to me because it's at the core of what makes us human. And the fascinating thing is that These motivations are human universal. I'm not talking about, hey, the color green, which India feels is a sacred religious color, and we think it uh, connotes freshness. Those are variations culturally. There's huge variations, for example, in the color red. In some places, it means um, something, you know, dangerous like stop and or you're losing money and in other places it's a hugely religious color i'm not talking about cultural variances what i'm talking about are human universals that are the same for every single person on this planet whether we grew up in china india south america Alaska, we want to be safe. We want to find people, places, and things that we trust. We don't want to think too hard. And we see pleasure over pain. These things don't vary by culture. This is a human universal. Right. Finding that human universal and and magnifying it, amplifying it is really what we're doing. And I don't even want to say advertising because, it, you know, I, I know you talk to your, you, you bill yourself as a customer experience specialist and, you know, advertising may just be uh, 
an ingredient in that customer experience? I think advertising is important, especially if you're new. Yeah. I think you have to understand that you shouldn't be going to market with something that is like hard to figure out. I mean, so many times you watch a commercial and you go, I don't even get the point of that. Um, you know, what you want to be doing in advertising, we're all consumers. We like to buy stuff. So tell me what you've got. Romance the product, romance the brand. What are your best features? What are your best assets? Why should somebody buy you? Give me a product demonstration. Don't, you know, like Mike's Lemonade did this ad campaign and it had like a devil popping up on the side of somebody's shoulder. And it's like, that's going to get me to buy Mike's Lemonade? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> and the mice coming out of an armpit. <laughs> So be wary, you know, if you end up as a client, be wary of these wacky ad campaigns that are, yes, attention getting. But if I could tell you the number of times that my mother calls me because she thinks I'm in advertising, <laughs> she says, oh, my God, I just saw the funniest, cutest commercial. There was like a little, you know, dog and he was falling off the bed and, you know, cat in the tree and whatever. And I say... Oh, great, Mom. Who is it for? And she goes, oh, that doesn't matter. Matters to the client who just spent $3 million producing the commercial and $3 million airing it. Um, if you can't remember, I mean, these are this goes deep for me. Um, I think it's becoming less of an issue because... You know, people are taking stuff to digital, but don't sell something in a way that makes people try to think too hard to figure out what the hell it is that that you're buying. Happens to me a lot. Sell your DNA, sell your core beliefs. I mean, Tesla does no advertising, zero, and they have a market cap. What have they been in the market for uh, 10 years? Their market cap is higher than Ford. That's the original car that's been here since 1904. So how? Because they use their purpose as their marketing platform. They want to create a more sustainable world. They want to create a, a, a carbon-free environment. So everything they do supports that, and the customers do the marketing for them because the customer experience is so profound, and they believe in the brand. I love that idea of tribes. <clears throat> so powerful, so powerful. Um, I want to be cognizant of your time. It's late. <laughs> I want to be cognizant of my students, and uh, I want to thank you so much. This has been. Fantastic. Peace. I, will, <laughs> I will, once this book is out, I will have plenty of copies to share with everybody. Oh, good, campus. because I'm getting 2,000 copies and I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> you come to campus, you'll have a book signing. COVID is over. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I love it.
Well, thank you all for attending. I hope this meant something. And I do have actually a masterclass and I've been given some, um, I don't I think I can still, I've been given 50 free uh, promotional um, links, but I think I still, and I think I can ask them for more. So if anybody would like to take my master class, which is a 400, this sounds like a sales seminar, which is a $495 class, but if you would like to take it as a student for free, um, I can give Neil the promo code. And then you'll get in depth on all the chapters. The only thing I ask is if you do watch it, um, it'd be great if you'd write a review. Thank you, Megan, and uh, have a good night. And everybody have a good night. Thank you for coming. Thank you for making this a success. Thank Our you. very first conversation with, the conversation with the creators, our inaugural uh, episode. Thank you.